That romantic sense of the trajectory of my life or what I thought that trajectory needed to be, where it was always there, I couldn't shake it no matter how hard I tried, until I actually started playing drums. And that was something that I always wanted to do. I always, you know, even as a little kid, I was always attracted not to the to the guitarist or the the lead singer or you know you know the pianist. I was always attracted to the guy sitting in the back, because the guy sitting in the back was always the one that you felt, or the one that I felt in my chest, in my gut, right? And the drummer always seemed like like the black sheep, and I honestly couldn't necessarily tell you why that was, but it always was. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman. And on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, we are talking with Andy Starr, co-founder and partner of the brand education company, Level C. And while I have your ear, if you're listening, I'm assuming you like our show. And if that premise holds true, then please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts. Better yet, please recommend this show to at least one friend you think will like it. If this is your first time listening, please consider subscribing. It is your subscriptions that make this show possible. All right, enough of that stuff. Let's get back to the show. Andy Starr's bio describes him as a provocateur for hire at the intersection of education, business, and brand. And while that is a super cool bio, I think he's so much more than that. Yes, he's a provocateur, but he's also a thought leader, an empath, an educator, an entrepreneur, a brand nerd, a people person, the partner to branding legend and author, Marty Neumeyer. I hope I can call him a friend and that he calls me the same. But if you ask Andy who he is, he'll probably say none of all that and simply tell you he's a musician. With 17 plus years of agency and in-house experience across multiple categories of client business, including special focus on nonprofit and higher education, Andy is equal parts strategist, creative, manager, and storyteller. I first met Andy as one of his students via the Level C program. Level C is an education platform. They're a company and a certification focused on all things brand. I've personally attended and surprisingly graduated both levels one and two. And all I can tell you is that there's something special about what they are building. How Andy sees the world in his relationship with brand master, Marty Neumeyer. Andy is an accomplished brand professional in his own right and well on his way to becoming a brand icon. Just don't tell him that. And this is his story. I am here with Andy Starr, 
He describes himself as a provocateur for hire at the intersection of education, business, and brand. He is also the co-founder and partner at Level C, and we'll talk a bit about that. But Andy, what is a provocateur for hire at the intersection of education, business, and brand? That's what I like to think of uh, a brand professional as being, someone who pokes the bear, someone who's looking to, you know, everyone's favorite word, zag, you know, and if everyone is doing this over here, I want to be the guy doing this over there. Okay. And just, you know, sometimes being different for the sake of being different, but professionally being different for the sake of being valuable. And that's what this whole thing is. It's provocation. Provocation can be bad, but provocation can be really good. It can be valuable. It can mean something. And that's how I see myself. I just see myself as a provocateur for hire, less for hire these days. Just I'm getting tired of doing client work. You know, I want to focus more on being provocative in the professional education space. So, you know, and and that is that is where we find ourselves, you know, at the intersection of business and education. You know, education is a business. I've had several education clients, universities and colleges that that refuse to acknowledge that they're a business at the end of the day that makes my job as a brand provocateur more difficult. So when Marty and I started this, I was just like, let's just call it what it is. Let's, let's, let's not gloss, spin, blow smoke. Education and business is where we are. It's what we do. And it's what we're looking to transform, you know, and leave, leave, leave the, the bullshitters to play in other spaces that they just make up or that they, they ignore. So that's, that's my jam. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, t- you talk about being a provocateur in the education space, which leads me to believe that there's something wrong with the education space, at least as, as we see it today. If that holds true, and please correct me if I'm incorrect in, in uh, making that assumption, what's wrong with education today? Like, what are you trying to change? Oh man, you don't have enough time in your podcast. <laughs> the big problem with education is its inability or refusal to accept the fact that it needs to change. And there are a million and one ways in which it needs to change. It needs to change from an administrative perspective. It needs to change from an academic perspective. It needs to change from a a financial perspective. It needs to change from a distribution perspective. So for us, in the professional education part of the sandbox. We believe that education should be a lifelong thing. It should go on forever. We should, you should, no one should ever want to stop learning. Most people don't, but access, quality of content, relevance of content, applicability of of concepts, that needs to change. And we're not proposing that we We are like the savior of education. We don't think that we're the savior of professional education. We want to, we want to practice what we preach and live up to what we believe. And so when it comes to professional education, we want to keep it focused. You know, we're not branding and marketing and sales and advertising and content and social media. We're just brand. And we're not, we don't want to take a how to brand approach to education. We just want to say, here's how you think about education, right? So when we think about our academic perch, we're not giving people prescriptions. We're just giving them food for thought. 
Okay. But that's not really out there. There are people who do it. You know, there, there are outlets, there are um, providers that do it, but they're fewer and farther between. And at a higher academic level, like MBA programs, there are really no MBA programs that talk about brand. If you want to find brand in Wharton's MBA program, you have to specialize more, focus on marketing. You have to take marketing courses at Wharton. And, you know, hopefully you hear about brand at some point, but they don't talk about how to think about brand. And that's just a, a loose example. So it's a big mountain to climb, dude. And Marty and I care very much about education. I especially care about education my professional background and my family's background. Um, I have educators in my family. My father was a professor. My grandfather was a university founder. He found, he co-founded a university and was an academic dean. And it's, I just care about it. It just matters. And so that's the space we want to play in. Yeah. And, and I definitely want to get into that and we might go there uh, real soon here. And, and as you were, as you were talking, like this idea of, Education remaining. You, you mentioned a lot of great points, you know, applicability and and, and accessibility and, and just availability. But this this idea of like education having to remain relevant, you know, and I'm personally just obsessed with this idea of like relevance and what does that mean and how do you stay relevant? Because what struck me as you were you were speaking is that yeah, like our education gets stale really quick, you know, especially in today's environment. It's not like back in the day when the university held the professors and the university held the books and you had to go there and that was the only access you had to that information. And then the world was also moving equally as slow. But now, you know, we can, we can learn from a Ted talk from someone around the world, from someone we've never had access to put that in, in motion, change the world. And so this idea of like staying relevant and I'm not even really sure I have a question for you at the end of this. It's, it's just fascinating to me. And that, you know, that really seems to be a huge challenge for people in the education space. Well, sure. And and like you said, one of the catalysts of that, you know, or sources of that challenge is because unlike 30, 40, 50 years ago, the world is just hyper-connected. And I don't even know if that's accurate. It's just, we are all connected we move and we think and we learn and we consume at faster and faster speeds, right? And so it raises the question of the role of immediacy in education, right? And, and, and speed and immediacy, I think, are part of its relevance, right? How quickly can I have access to the educational content? How quickly can I consume it? How quickly can I be deemed to be proficient? And how quickly can I get out or back in the real world and actually use it and make a difference, bring value, earn something in return, right? Those questions raise a thousand more questions. So it's, it's complicated. It's, it's super, super tricky. But, you know, another thing about relevance is, and this is something that we, we've actually tackled in our first level masterclass for the teams that worked on higher education as a category to disrupt, right? We've heard things about kind of the cadence or the formulaic structure of education. And this is something that Marty feels especially strong about. Traditionally, is, and even today, kind of the model of education, is, you know, at the, at, the, at the 
college and beyond level is like you study theory, right? You spend four years, two years, you know, three years in law school, you study the theory, and then you go out in the world and you learn, gain, use skills, right? But while you're studying that theory, it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? How does this, how does, how is this theory relevant to the world that I'm about to land in or that it's about to fall on me one way or another? How do I, how do I survive just with this theory? And so, you know, there's one school of thought that says, you know, learn the skills first and then continue lifelong learning and learn that theory have a, a, a greater appreciation, a better ability to think critically, analytically, right? But the flip side to that argument is, well, that's what a liberal arts education is. And liberal arts teaches you how to think critically and analytically. You're reading about history and philosophy and literature. You're not doing that just for shits and giggles, right? You're not doing it solely to feed the ego of a tenured professor, although that that is part of it. It prepares you for a world that is constantly evolving, a world in which the kind of one career from start to finish doesn't exist the way it used to, with a few exceptions. And you have to be able to think critically and analytically so that you're flexible enough to kind of jump from one chapter of your career to the next, from one role to another, from one category to another, and in some cases, making a complete career change from one to another. And I did that, right? And so we've altruistically, we sleep very well at night because we know that what we're doing is righteous, it's self-righteous. We want to make a valuable contribution in this space. But at the same time, it's not that we've set ourselves up for failure. It's that it's a huge mountain to climb, and we will most certainly never get to the peak of it. But that's okay. That's okay. So much to unpack there, and so I'm not even going to try. What, what I'd like to do is talk shift. to my therapist. I'll, I'll, I'll. <laughs> uh, I'd like to shift gears a little bit, and you know, you, you talked a little bit about your family and your your family history, but. You know, and you also mentioned that part of being a provocateur is is being different. And so when you were young, were you always striving to be different as a child? I mean, was this was this ingrained in you as like eight-year-old Andy always pushing yeah. boundaries? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I grew up uh in a relatively conservative-minded white-collar family. Dad was a lawyer, mom was a, a social worker, and we lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and it was a relatively conservative, change-resistant part of the world, change-resistant parents. And yeah, I was kind of a black sheep. I just, you know, if everyone told me to do one thing, I just wanted to do the complete opposite. I liked feeling and being different. But that's as a kid, you know, the, I, I didn't understand the value in that. And it wasn't, it wasn't really until I got into this work 20, 30 years later that I understood why being different, wanting to feel different, look different, act different, think different is so important and why I cared about it so much without understanding why. And, and you know, Marty, we, we talk about this in the class. It's, you know, human beings are hardwired to notice what's different, but it's the why. We're hardwired. We, we different matters because we think that there's something in it for us. 
whether it's noticing something different or acting, feeling, wanting to be different, there is a perceived payoff to that. And that when I, when I realized that, when that was kind of revealed to me and for me, my whole perspective, my perspective on everything changed on life, on, on, on career. And then when I realized how I could weaponize that and use that in this space, like everything just kind of broke, broke open. And, but, but, but it, it bears, it bears repeating. And like, I feel like the need to constantly say it, it's not being different for the sake of being different. There's a reason for it. The reasons may be my own, right? The reasons may be a client's goals. It kind of doesn't matter, but there are reasons for doing it. There are reasons for wanting to do it. And there are sure shit reasons for learning how to think about that, right? And again, it all comes back to learning to think about it. I'm not, we don't teach you. I would never teach someone how to be different, but we do talk about, and I'm happy to talk about thinking about being different. Yeah. And I think thinking about being different is the, for me, at least the, the key idea, because inherently we don't want to be different. I mean, our, 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 childhoods could have been very similar, except I grew up in Detroit and you grew up in Philadelphia. But I remember like I felt different, but I didn't want to be different, you know, and being different what there was always this yin and this yang between like intention between being different and people saying that's what makes you special. And the reality of like, we want to be part of groups and we want to fit in and we want to be the same. And I think, you know, we can talk about this later, but I think that's the trap brands fall into all the time is that they, they want to fit in. They want to be seen like they, 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 they're scared to be different and they're thereby they try to fit in and then they get bland and they get diluted and, and all these things, things happen. So you know, when you were a kid, when you were looking around and, and being different, I mean, what were you into? Like, what, what were your interests? Like, what did you think you were going to be? Did you think you were going to be a provocateur for hire? Did you think you were going to be in education? Like, what did you think you were going to do? No, I mean, I guess looking back, I think I had this oddly romantic sense that I would follow in my father's footsteps. You know, I, I my dad was incredibly important to me. My grandfather was, in, both my grandfathers were incredibly important to me. And I kind of always saw myself following in one of their footsteps, either a lawyer without knowing what that meant or understanding why. It was just, it was my what my dad did. A university dean, because that's what his father did, or a psychoanalyst, which is what my other grandfather did. They were, you know, that's, that's what I wanted to do. And, and I always, even through college, I had that, that, that romantic sense of the, a romant, that romantic sense of the trajectory of my life or what I thought that trajectory needed to be where it was always there. I couldn't shake it no matter how hard I tried until I actually started playing drums. And that was something that I always wanted to do. I always, you know, even as a little kid, I was always attracted not to the to the guitarist or the the lead singer or you know, you know, the pianist. I was always attracted to the guy sitting in the back. Because the guy sitting in the back was always the one that you felt or the one that I felt in my chest, in my gut, right? And the drummer always seemed like like the black sheep. And I honestly couldn't 
necessarily tell you why that was, but it always was. In sports, I was a soccer, I'm still a soccer geek. I played soccer since I was three. Well, when you're a kid, everyone wants to be the striker, the forward who scores the goals. I never did. I wanted to be the goalkeeper. Why? Because the goalkeeper got to wear the different shirt, the gloves, and the goalkeeper was always either the hero, if he made the big save, or the goat, the bad goat, if he if he botched it and let a goal in. So drum, you know, the drums and being goalie in soccer, to me, they were always the same thing. All the glory, if you got it, complete, you know, complete disaster if you fuck it up. And for me, there was never, I was never satisfied. I never enjoyed, to me, the middle ground was boring. It was uninteresting. It's like, it was like, it was just nothing and I wanted nothing to do with it. And so my parents encouraged me to play soccer as a kid. They wanted me to have nothing to do with the drums because to them, the drums weren't a real musical instrument. Playing the piano, playing the guitar, playing, you know, the violin or, or saxophone, that was fine with them, but playing drums wasn't. And I didn't get to play drums until I got to college. And when I did, I mean, I remember the first time I did it, that actually changed my life more than almost anything because I felt like I was meeting myself and meeting the person I always wanted to be for the first time. Do you remember that day? I totally remember. I, I remember the day I decided no matter what, I was going to find a drum set and teach myself. And I remember, I remember the day that I sat down behind a drum set with drumsticks in my hand for the first time. Absolutely. I remember my first gig and it was all in my first, my freshman year and it changed everything. It ch literally changed the trajectory of my life. Where were you that first day you played the drums? Take us there. It was in January of 1998. We had just come back from winter break and there was a, a senior on campus who was a drummer in a funk band. And the funk band played on campus. And when they would, it was like the thing. It was like the coolest thing ever. And he, you know, kind of did your, your typical rock star kind of, you know, playing with his shirt off, sunglasses, cigarette dangling from his lips. And it just drove people nuts. And I was just like, I just need to do that. I was super shy. I didn't drink. I didn't party. And it was something I always wanted to chase. But it was also a way for me to stand out on my campus. And that was important to me. I wanted to have a good college experience. And up to that point, I really wasn't. And I knew who he was. It took me a semester to work up the courage to approach him. And I, on, on a January day, we, were, we had been back on campus for like a few days. And I saw him walking and I ran out of the building. I chased him down. It was really, really cold. And I just said, hey, you're the drummer in that band. I would love to learn how to play the drums. Could I maybe play on your kit a couple times and see if I can do it? And I thought he was just going to say no. And he said, yeah, here's the room on campus where they're stored. Here's the code to get in. Play anytime you want. And it took me like another week to work up the courage just to go and do that. And I had no idea what I was doing. There was YouTube didn't exist, so I couldn't watch videos on how to do it. But I had a pair of drumsticks that I had, you know, come into my possession along the way. And I sat down and just for some reason I knew what to do. And it was, it became addictive. And I played my very first gig 
with people a few months later. They had heard me practicing and they wanted to know who was playing. They said, you're really good. What do you want to jam with us? And that and that first gig, I remember the songs we played. It was like, it was just, it was transformative. And that's, so that's what I wanted to do for a long time. I wanted to just be a professional musician. I went to music school after college. I wanted to be in a rock band. That's what I wanted to do. It did play out that way, but. Um, yeah, so what people, happened? Well, you know, music piracy, the, the, the way the industry changed in 02 and 03. I wanted to be a musician, but I didn't want to be a poor starving musician living out of a van, driving six or 800 miles a night from gig to gig just to kind of build up that fan base. I just didn't want that. I wanted to be a musician, not a rock star. So, but I'm still a musician. And if people, when people ask me like to talk about myself, I say, you know, I'm a musician first, a Philadelphian second, you know, and I work in brand third. That is me. Nice. And so, but you're not in Philadelphia right now, are you? No, I left, I left Philly. I left no. Philly, um, uh, Jesus, like almost two years ago now. And I was making my way. I'm very nomadic right now. I'm, I was making my way to California through, uh, by way of Houston. My best friend lives here and I wanted to see him and I've just gotten stuck here with COVID. So, but I'm Philly being from Philly is like, you know, other places. It's like an attitude. It's like a state of mind. So I can live, I can live and be anywhere, but I'm from Philly. I feel like being stuck in Houston because of COVID is like a great, the next great, like Wes Anderson movie, you know, like it's just like, <laughs> sounds, sounds incredible to me. But so you, you leave college, you go to music school, you're, pr you're pursuing your, uh, love of music and you decide that you might have to get a real job. And so like, how, how do you get into like this brand stuff? I mean, the path isn't always obvious and I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't for you either. It wasn't. I still didn't know really what brand meant. Then I, I left music school. I was kind of like in a funk, didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be the lawyer that my parents wanted me to be. And my dad working in finance, he and I kind of had had a falling out a little bit. We were, we had a rocky thing for a few years and he, when he learned that I was going to leave music school, he asked if I would want to kind of learn his business and maybe build a, a path, you know, a career and, you know, some stability for myself. And I didn't care about the business, but I cared about him. So I did it. And, and I liked what we were doing. I liked it. That was, that was just commercial finance. And, um, and so that was going to be the trajectory of my life. And then it's a much longer story, but um, things happen professionally with our business and, and with the economy at the time. And we were professionally, we were the victims of fraud. And when that happened, my dad basically lost his business and I kind of lost a pathway, if you will. And I was very angry, like ferociously angry. And I wanted revenge and I applied to law school and I got in and so I was prepared to do that. And at the time I, I was, I was in a relationship with a girl and she worked in, she was a graphic designer and she worked like in advertising and her father was kind of a big name in branding in the branding world. And 
she she kind of had her own little consultancy and she would kind of come home from the day and I was trying to study the law and she was complaining about her clients and I found myself talking with her about her clients, but I was talking about it from a strategic standpoint, not from a design standpoint. And I found that I was liking that a whole lot more than studying the law. Between that and her father kind of encouraging me to pursue that and not to pursue the law, I I got out of the law. I got I left law school before it was too late. And I'm really glad I did. And I started kind of doing this loosely with her, still not knowing really what brand meant, still not really knowing that advertising was like a whole like industry and thing that I could go do professionally. And then one night she suggested that I read a book about branding and it was called The Brand Gap. And I had never seen a book like it, never heard of the author, but I started reading it. And next thing I knew it was the next morning and I had stayed up all night reading it. I just couldn't stop. And that experience was probably the other thing that changed my life's trajectory, right? It, I just, I saw and thought, and that was the thing. I thought about everything. I thought about business. I thought about people without ever having had any grounding or experience in the concept of brand, literally overnight, I knew exactly what brand meant. And from, from that point, I knew not only was this interesting and that I wanted to try it, I knew that I could be really good at it. I just knew that I could. It all just made sense. And it, in some ways, it filled in some gaps for me. It, it, it helped me think about myself and where I had been and why I was the way I was, right? And why I am the way I am. So um, it just, when that happened, when she put brand gap in my hand, like that was it. Everything became crystal clear. I ended up stalking Marty for a long time. Like I, I stalked him online, found him. He was at his his old agency, Neutron. And I emailed him and I was just like, hey, read, you know, read the brand gap. I think you're a genius. This is what I want to do. Will you be my mentor, please? I need a mentor. And I joke about it, but he basically sent me like a fuck off, I'm too busy email. He didn't use that language, but he that was basically what he was saying. But I didn't care. I kept sending him messages along the way when I would get my first agency gig, when I would get my, you know, produce my first, you know, uh, uh, copywriting project. I would just send stuff to him just to see what he would say. And occasionally he would respond with looks good, keep it up, you know, kind of your, your, your packaged automated response. Right. But I started to try to demonstrate to him that even though I didn't have the experience in the portfolio that a lot of other players in the space had, I thought about it differently. And I thought about it at a much higher, deeper, more impactful level. And he started to respond to me. And at one point he invited me to come to France to a private workshop that he was holding with like, you know, executives and like super high level designers. He's like, come to this chateau. It'll be for a week and you'll, it'll be crazy. It'll change your life. And I didn't go. And it's like the one regret I have professionally, like I didn't go to that, but you know, fast forward six years later and look at what I'm doing with him of all the people in the world who could be doing. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling 
about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. WildStory helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. Crazy, right? And so like six years ago, you have no, should I say, resume or credential in this space. You decide that it's your calling and it and it hits you. And how long before like Marty starts to even like respond to you and you build that relationship? I mean, you kind of jump, but I mean, how long are you like sending him like, hey, I'm still here messages like, hey, like, uh, I, you know, respond. I sent him. I sent the, that very first message to him, like in November of 2009. And then I think I was sending him maybe like one a year up until like 2014. And, and I had been basically agency hopping, you know, like shop hopping in between. And then in 2013, I sent him something. And that's when he responded with like, hey, you should come to this workshop. And, I, you know, I was like... I don't think I can. I'm about to start a new agency gig, you know? And he was like, if you just buy the plane ticket, just come, just, you don't have, don't pay the workshop fee. Just, just come for free. I would have been the most junior person there. And I came this close, but I was starting a new agency gig at an agency I'd really wanted to, to land in. And I didn't think it was a good idea. And then I didn't, I didn't email him. I didn't message him for several years. And then, uh, it was in 2017. So it was about three years ago. I I had gotten tired of the agency world, super tired of it. And I, uh, I left and I was working at a startup and they were, it, the startup worked in the event space and they, they, they were an event business and they had physical space and they wanted to kind of rebrand themselves, but they also wanted to evolve their product offering. And I started talking with the CEO and we, we, we were coming up with ideas of, you know, how could we make this event space? Because at the time, like that was like super commoditized, right? And WeWork was, the, was becoming the 800 pound gorilla, right? And so there was this idea of using this existing space, not just for corporate meetings and events, but for education and to, to come to, to fill the schedule with gurus across different disciplines, leading workshops. That was already happening, but here was a space and we could kind of reposition this business around that. Well, that was cool, but that wasn't wholly unique. And I had this idea to go one step further and find like high level gurus who were already delivering workshops and educational content and to kind of bring them into this mix and to do that in partnership with a local business school, like a local MBA program. And the idea would be that the MBA program would underwrite certain of these workshops, right? And allow participants to not just take the workshop, but to earn academic credit 
towards that school's MBA. That wasn't really being done anywhere by anyone or any school. And so we decided like that was, that was a cool idea. We wanted to change it, but we had two challenges. We had to find the gurus, but we also had to find an MBA program willing to do that. And so we chased the MBA program first, because to me, that was going to be the bigger lift. But fortunately, a, a, a local Philadelphia MBA program, we had a connection, we had a meeting, we, had a, we made a proposal to the dean, and we said, let's just give it a shot. Let's do one, one professional ed, you know, adult education workshop in a specific topic that we all agree on, and the MBA program will give or make credit available. Let's just see. The dean just was like, okay, done. Let's try it. Okay. And when we were walking out of the conference room, someone said, by the way, what's the topic and, and who's going to be the, 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 the subject matter expert? We didn't know. And I, I literally just blurted out, how about brand? Branding? That's relevant to business and no MBA program really offers that. It's a great, great idea. And, and who will lead it? And I was like, there's a guy who wrote some books. And they said, great, set it up. Then I, so then I sent Marty an email for the first time in years. And I reminded him who I was. And I told him, here's what we're doing. Here's what we want to try. We want to try it with you. And I really didn't expect a response. I got a response in like 30 minutes. And he's like, let's talk. And Marty doesn't like to like do things by email or by phone. He likes to Skype or he likes to see you. And I was like, oh my God, I'd never done that before. I'd never spoken to him, Skyped, whatever. And we set it up and we set up a 30 minute kind of intro. That's what I thought it was going to be. It was like a two and a half hour like thing back and forth. And my entire team was like behind my laptop, like, like listening. And we're, I'm just jamming with master. And he said, uh, like, in his entire career, people have come to him with ideas and wanting to partner. And he said, this was the best idea that anyone had brought to him, like, better than lynda.com, wanting him to, like, come in and do that, better than LinkedIn Learning, wanting him to come in and, like, be exclusive. He's like, this was it. Okay, crazy. Fast forward a little bit. We were getting everything set up. The MBA, there was a problem with the MBA program. We pulled out. And then... The, the startup just, it wasn't, it wasn't working. They wanted to go in a different direction. They weren't funded properly. And so I bounced, but Marty and I kept talking. We would email and kind of, we started asking ourselves like, what if, like, how about, you know, could we blah, blah, blah. And one day he just said, look, if they weren't willing or able to do it, why don't you and I just do this ourselves? Why don't you and I just try it? Okay. I flew out to Santa Barbara. He invited me to his home. We locked ourselves in his home studio for like three or four days. And we went through our own process that we teach. We did it on ourselves. And we had this thing basically in the can, like before I left. And here we are. Yeah. And so take yourself back to that time in Santa Barbara. I mean, what are you thinking? Are you just looking around like, I can't believe this is happening? Like this, you know, this, you know, as they say, the, this, this uh, escalated quickly, right? Like all of a sudden um, you're in partnership and I know it's, you've built a relationship over time and I, and I really don't want to minimize that because I think it's a huge 
um, thing that I want people to take away from this, that, that you, you built a relationship, you stayed in front of Marty and when the time was right, it was right for both of you. But as you're in Santa Barbara and you're building this thing and you're like, we're doing this thing. Are you just kind of looking around? Like you're, you mentioned you're in his studio. I mean, this is, you know, I think for any brand or you have his books on your desk. I mean, mine, I just put mine just to the side here, but I, you know, I've, I've typically got stacks of them. I mean, to me, that would be like, what? So I had met him. He, he flew to Philadelphia while we, you know, after we, we kind of agreed we were going to try it with that startup. He flew to Philadelphia because he wanted to meet me and the team at the time. And he, he gave us, he basically did his um, brand flip workshop, like for like almost nothing. He just wanted to meet us. And so I, I, I had the starstruck thing when I picked him up at the airport, that was like, that was bananas. I was like, you know, just a little kid. But when he invited me to out to his home, that's when for me, it, it, it became something different. And <laughs> The coolest thing that we did there was, you know, I'm in his, his, his studio. It's like the kind of studio I would want for myself, you know, and he has like on his bookshelves, he has, you know, extra copies of all of his books and then all of the design and business and strategy books that have influenced him. Right. And I'm, I'm literally going like book by book. And then I get up to the shelf with extra copies of the brand gap. Right. I'm like, this is so wild, so wild. And they were all like super pristine, right? Except for one copy. There was one copy that was all just beat up and folded and, and there were rabbit ears and there were little post-its sticking out of it. And I thought like, that's really weird. Like, why is that up there? Like, is that his copy? Was that like, a, is that a first edition, whatever? I take it down and I'm looking at it and I'm just, I'm holding it in my oily, you know, hands. And I'm just like, what is it? And he walked out of the office for a few minutes and that's when I was doing this. And when he comes back in, I just turned to him and I'm like, what's the story with this book? Because it's not pristine, like sentimental value. And he's like, oh, look at the cover. And I look at the cover and it said, Steve's copy hands off. And I'm like, I, I, I don't get it. Who's Steve? And he just so nonchalantly says, well, oh, that's Steve Jobs copy. I was like, what? And I'm holding Steve Jobs copy of the brand gap, beat up, folded, marked, you know, rabbit eared, you know, notes, you know, that for me was, that was another thing. Like this guy wants to like be my partner. He wants to do this with me. That was, that's, that was really kind of like the first time with Marty that I felt way out of my element. Like this should not be me. I'm not, I'm, I should not be the one to do this. Um, it, it made me like nervous. I was like genuinely like kind of out of sorts about it. Um, and then we sat down and started going, you know, through the thing. And I'm kind of a control freak. I like to be in control when, when I know what I'm doing and I feel confident about what I'm doing. I, I can, I can drive the train. I was just like, no way. I was like, dude, you're in charge. Like you lead the way I'm going to follow. I'm going to do this with you, but like, you know, master apprentice, you know, Jedi Padawan, like I'm totally okay with that. And when we started going through it, I thought I knew things, right. You know how, like you can read the books and you can have your successes and you can have your confidence. And you, you think, you know, your shit, right. You know, I know all my rudiments on the drums and like, you know, I'm a pretty decent drummer, 
but then you meet like a real drummer and you're like, that cat is just a bad fucking dude. When, when we kicked it off that morning, I was just like, whoa. And I regret not like recording the entire thing for posterity because it was that bad. It was that like, oh, all right. So this is what, this is what it's really like when the master does it. And I mean, like the whole thing was like a learning experience. And I was like, I was drunk by like the end of the first day. Yeah. And, you know, you were wondering like, hey, how, how could this be me? But it is you. So in, in working with Marty, like what makes him a great partner? Marty's no bullshit. That's the best thing about him. You know, even better than his experience and his talent and his intelligence and his intellectual curiosity. He reads more than almost anyone I know, but he is no bullshit. He's no bullshit with me. He's no bullshit with our students. He calls it exactly the way he sees it. And it's funny, we've actually had disagreements about that. When we give feedback in our class, I'm an advocate for a slightly gentler approach. I don't think that there's a need to be super blunt just for the sake of, you know, minimizing bullshit. And we've, we've disagreed on that, but I've come around to really appreciate and have, have just the most, the utmost respect for his candor, his, the elegance that he provides feedback and expertise, the, the elegance with which he shares his mastery with other people. Um, and that was no different for me. I just had the, the luxury of having it one-on-one in a, a, a very intimate setting, right? That's, that's the thing about Marty. Um, just, and, and look at the space we work in. Look at how much bullshit there is. I mean, I've worked at agencies and I've worked with people who literally have this philosophy that we are in the bullshit business, right? That's hard. That's hard to swallow, right? For me, at least. And to realize and then experience that the, mas- the guy who wrote the book, the master himself, is completely, and I mean completely, anti-bullshit. Was, I was just like, this, this is just too good to be true just too good to be true but it's not it's just too good so no it is too good and you know to flip the coin a little bit what makes you a great partner what do you think uh, either you can address that from either what you think or what do you think marty would say <laughs> i i don't see see the, the weird thing is it's not that i'm uncomfortable asking that i just don't know it's, it's not, I'm not the type of person who typically answers that. I, I would say, I think one of the things that makes me a good partner is that I take it, it's, it's because I follow some of the, some of the advice that I, and, and guidance that I try to contribute to others, including I take it seriously, but I'm not too serious about it. I think I have a very healthy idea of what matters and what doesn't for myself, for Marty, for us, and for our tribe. I'm very patient, I think. I think I'm hyper patient. And I'm, I, am, I am extremely passionate about what we're doing. And I know that, sound, that may all sound cliched, but one of the things I've learned 
is that if that's not, if that stuff isn't there, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. Right. And the last thing I want to do is be a hypocrite. I couldn't really live with myself if people thought that I or Marty or we were, were hypocrites in what we, what we preach, what we teach. So I think that for Marty, I think for Marty, I'm also a balance. You know, we, we talk about personality types and, and roles. And I think that Marty and I complement each other really well. There are things that he can do that I can't, and I don't want to try. There are things that he can do that I can do that I just don't want to do, that I don't like to do, or that I'm just not very good at. And there are ways that he thinks that I don't or I can't. And I would say the flip is just as true. And I think that we balance and, and complete and round each other out really well like that. You know, like looking at it from 80,000 feet, he's, he's a creative and a designer and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a strategist, right? He's, he's strategic. I am creative, but we kind of, we recognize where we belong and we recognize our lanes and he's not as territorial as you, as some people might expect him to be. He is. And on all things creative, I defer to him. And he, he, I think for him, I'm also going back to the word, you know, going back to the label provocateur, I'm more provocative than he is. I am, I think I'm definitely more brash. I'm a little more raw and, and maybe he likes that because he doesn't need to be that anymore. He doesn't want to be that anymore. Maybe it's just not enough, you know, him, but I think we just, we just complement each other really well. We, we look at the world basically the same way. We, we've never really had an argument about anything. We have disagreements, but we're both patient enough. And I am super respectful of his seniority to me, super respectful. And I value that. And I want him to, and I tell him, I want him to be the master, not just for others, but, but for me too. And, and allow me to learn while we're doing this. And I have every time he and I jam on something, I learn something new, which is bananas. And I think all of that makes me a partner that works for him, with him. And he's had partners in the past. I'd be curious to hear what he thinks of me as a partner, but that's the thing. I'm not going to let my ego get in the way. I want to know, and I want to be a good partner going forward. And even when he takes a step back and I have to decide how level C kind of moves on, I'm going to want other partners and I want to be a good partner for them. So, you know, but I hate talking about myself that way. Like I hate it. <laughs> good question though. Good, good, good. And so, you know, as you talk about level C, like, let's talk about that for a second. Like why does brand matter and, and why does level C matter? Like, what are you trying to do with this thing? Brand matters because brand is, brand is the people's connection to business right? Brand is what lets, a comp what lets the company and the people actually come together. So when a company talks about the people, the people, the people, the customers, it's all just talk. It's the brand that actually makes that real, that makes that consequential, if you will. And so brand should matter to the business world if they actually care about the consumer, the people, the tribe, the audience, whatever you want to call them. 
brand should matter to people because it's through brand that people can influence and change business. Okay. And what we're trying to do with level C is we are trying to, we're, we're trying to put, or depending on your perspective, restore the role of brand into the C-suite to restore the role of brand into a position of influence on the business side, a position of relevance to the business and the consumer side to change the conversation, right? There's a lot of conversation, especially recently about kind of the role of brand versus marketing. You know, there are a lot of people that believe that, you know, brand is a part of marketing and we believe that, you know, marketing is actually a part of brand. And that's a red herring. I definitely don't want to go down, go down that path here, but we want to influence the way people think about this stuff. And we believe that when they think about it, when they learn and they think and they process and then they practice, real change can happen. And, you know, here's the thing. We don't, we're not trying to change the world. We're not. Maybe we're one of the few brands out there that is comfortable saying that. We're not looking to change the world. We're looking to change a part of business because we do believe that if you change business enough, then the world can be changed. So that's what we're trying to do. We're, you know, we're creating an army of, of people who, who get this stuff, right? And maybe army isn't the right word. Maybe tribe isn't even right, the right word. We're just, we're creating, we're creating the opportunity for people who work in this space to get it, evangelize it, and bring the rest of us forward. Yeah, and, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've spoken on this before, but you know, I believe that this idea of business is just this one big story that we all have invented and buy into. And if if you hold that to be true, then that means that we have the power to influence it and change it. And I also think there's something that's like just crazy going on right now. And, and I'd love to get your take on this. Um, you know, even thinking about like brand, you know, the history of brand, but like, you know, it's it's my observation that people are looking to brands now in ways that they never have before, right? They're looking to brands for how do you feel about COVID, for example? How do you feel about racial inequality? How do you feel about politics? You know, and by asking the brand that they want information, it's well, it says like, well, then if you feel this way, then I feel this way. It's a direct reflection. And I think there's just this crazy thing happening. And I don't know if you're seeing that, if that's if that feels new to you, but like this idea that like even the brands I work with, they're like, well, what do we say? Like, how do we act? You know, and, and you know, that's a bigger conversation because, you know, we can get into like values and in your beliefs and, you know, hold true to those. But I just find this, this kind of forefront of brand and the way people are looking to brand to, to comment on the world so that it tells them how they feel about the world is just this, you know, and I, and I believe in that, like, how the customer felt about the world was, it seemed to be that like, it was, it's been like that for a long time, but it's like the subtext. It's like, it's like, like, what am I, what's my status or like, how do I see myself? But now it just seems like way more overt and direct in terms of like what people are are demanding from brands in terms of worldview. I mean, it's, it's tribalism, right? You can boil all of that down into tribalism or identity, right? Who am I? What do I stand for? What do I want? You know, what matters to me? You know, I think it's a different conversation. I think it reflects a lot of other things. The fracturing of the human, of human identity over the last, you know, 20 plus years. And I know it's, it goes 
back way longer than that. But, you know, the way the world has changed in the past 20 years, the way we've all become, you know, immediately connected, right? You know, everything can happen now. Um, I can talk to someone, you know, we had a student uh, in a thing this morning from Nepal, like I can talk to him in, in a second, right? Um, and so I think that that's created kind of a, a sense of urgency. Maybe that's not the, not exactly what I mean, but in terms of, in terms of clarity about where you stand. And so when people, you know, ask the question, well, what does the brand stand for? Right. You know, what, what is, what is, I don't, I'm making it up. What is Warby Parker's stance on Black Lives Matter? It's not so much that they care about Warby Parker's stance. And this, this is what I'm, I'm just speaking for myself, what I believe. I don't think it's so much that they care about Warby Parker's stance. I think it's Warby Parker's stance helps frame a little bit more of the context for themselves. How, where do they see themselves in relation to Black Lives Matter and Warby Parker and Apple and Nike and Starbucks and Virgin and pick a brand, right? Because really, really at the end of the day, do you think that people really give a shit about most brands? I don't, I don't. I think that brand loyalty is almost like a misnomer. Like, do I love my iPhone? Yeah. Do I love my Apple Watch? Sure. Do I love my MacBook Pro? Absolutely. Am I loyal to the Apple brand? No. I don't care that much. I just don't. I care about me. I care about my friends, my family. I care about my community. I, I you know, I, I care about who's at the top of the Barclays Premier League table. I don't really care about Apple as a brand. If I hear that Apple has a position or has done something that I don't agree with, does it anger me, annoy me, you know, piss me off? Yeah, it does. But mainly just because I, I, I wish that they could see it the way I see it. But I don't, I, don't, I don't look at it the way I know a lot of people look at it. You know, when I have a client and they, they, they'll ask me, you know, how should we respond to this? I'm always going to tell them the truth and not my truth, but what I strategically believe is best for the business and the brand. And that's always a tricky kind of gray area, but I just, I just don't think people care. I, I struggle to believe that people genuinely care. And people may say, I really care. And they may, they may believe that they may feel that way. And I, and I, I won't disrespect or deny that that happens. I won't, but I think deep down, maybe, you know, it's, it's more id than ego. I don't think it matters to them as much as it's been made out to. Okay. But again, if you believe, if you believe me, when I say, if you believe in the idea that the brand is what connects people to the business, well, then what the brand stands for, their values, their, their position on a given issue, political, social, whatever, then it does matter for better or for worse. Um, I just don't think that the brand can control it as much as they think they can, right? Because they certainly can't control their audience. They can influence their audience. They can try to anticipate what the majority of their audience believes or feels about a specific issue. 
but you know when it comes to control and and it doesn't exist it just doesn't influence exists but even that has a limit so i roll my eyes a lot when when i when i see the question you know or the debate happening it's i'm just like who really cares that's different from caring about the issue i definitely care about the issues i i feel very strongly about the same issues i just don't care about what the brand thinks or what the brand says they stand for i just don't hmm. so to challenge you on that if mm-hmm. apple and by the way this is theory everybody mm-hmm. if apple actually denounced black lives matter if they had a more non-inclusive policy towards lgbtq and like you know did not recognize those folks that would have no bearing in your purchase of their product it probably would and not probably would it would but that's not again it's not so much because of what apple stands for it's for what i stand for correct yeah that's that's why um and and again i i recognize that what i just said may may initially resonate with some people like what wait he he doesn't care no i care very very much i i i have extremely strong feelings that i believe are in the majority by the way i i think that i stand with most people on most issues i do and because they matter so much to me that's what influences my decision that's what influences my behavior one way or another um if uh you know here's another example um Remember, I think it was a couple of years ago, the, I, th- I think it was the CEO of Barilla Pasta was kind of outed for making, you know, homophobic remarks, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like a pasta. I basically eat spaghetti every day of my life. And up to that point, Barilla was the brand that I like to make. I haven't had Barilla since, and I never will. Not because, because of what he said, but that's not what influenced my decision. It's because of how I feel. That's how strongly I feel about it, right? And and there's a difference, I think. It's subtle, it's nuanced, it's complicated, it's not simple. But if someone, if Apple, so if Apple basically denounced Black Lives Matter and people boycott Apple, it's more because of how those people feel for themselves about the issue. That's what I'm saying. Got it, got it. Well. Andy, I could talk to you forever. Uh, This has gone super fast. And as we near the end of our time together, I'd love for you to think back to that time when you first walked into that music room and sat down at those drums and maybe hit the drum once or twice and had that charge of electricity. And if that Andy ran into you today, what do you think he'd say? What do you think he would say about me now? Yeah. I have no idea. Wow, I've never been asked that before. I've always been asked the opposite. What would I say to Andy, that Andy then? I, I like to think that he would say... I'm, I'm sorry. I have no, I, I'm like stunned by that. That, that question is going to haunt me 
for a while. And I don't, I don't even want to say I have to get back to you on that, although I know I'm going to. I have no idea, dude. What a, what a, wow. I'm like, what an amazing question. You can see my face. I know you can. Um, I'm, I'm just like, can I, (laughs) can I ask you, why did you ask me that question? Part of it is, I want to know if your younger self would have been impressed or would have been interested or intrigued or curious or a myriad of other thoughts about how your life turned out and where you're at today and where you're going. Hmm. And if that young Andy, who was probably thinking, oh my gosh, I'm about to become a lifelong professional musician, would have thought like, hey, you know, this is just as good playing music in a different way. I think this is just more of me now than what I would have been back then. But I, I like to think, or maybe I just hope, that he would have asked me, is it a good gig? Is it a good gig? And without hesitation, I'd, I'd say it's the best gig. It is the best gig. This is a people business, dude. Like, it's more about people than it is about business. Um, the business side of Level C, like, it's like the least fun thing that I do. The most fun thing that I do is meeting people like you, meeting, you know, meeting people like Mata Marinadu, meeting people like Matt Davies, Chris Lateral, Layla Kazimova. I'm, you know, 300, more than 300 people awesome human beings who work on the human side of business from like 40, 50 countries so far. That's, that's like the best gig in the world. The best gig. And that is Andy Starr of Level C. Well, what did you think? Done drinking from the fire hose yet? I could have talked with Andy for hours but I think we covered quite a bit of ground in our time today. A big heartfelt thank you to Andy Starr and the team at Level C. We will link to all things Andy Starr and Level C in the show notes. If you're interested in sharpening your brand chops, I highly recommend you check out their masterclasses. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 